Hello, and welcome to this, the fifth of our Destination Podcasts, a series of podcasts designed to explore the process of ensuring scheme liabilities through the purchase of a bulk annuity contract. I'm Lee Colgate, a legal director in the pensions team at Osborne Clark. I'm really pleased to be joined today by Andrew Overend, a partner at First Actuarial. Today, we're going to look at how schemes should invest their assets before approaching the bulk annuity market. Welcome, Andrew, and thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. In the first podcast in our series, Rosie Phantom, a risk transfer partner at Barnet Waddingham, explained that schemes can protect a strong buy-in funding position by making changes to their investment strategy. Could you start us off by expanding on how this might work? Yeah, the, the key point to appreciate is that buy-in pricing is not static and will fluctuate as market conditions change. A well-structured investment strategy will ensure that the scheme's assets respond in a similar way to the market movements as the changes in the liabilities. If this can be achieved, the buy-in funding position will become relatively stable, even though the buy-in premium itself might change. How might a scheme go about achieving this? Well, as Rosie noted in your first podcast, there are a number of key drivers of buy-in pricing which we can look to protect against. The first consideration is changes in interest rates. And as is the case for most pension scheme liability measures, when it comes to the buyout price or the buy-in price, if interest rates or gilt yields, which are linked to interest rates, fall, then the value of the liabilities will increase. This is because, put simply, the scheme or the insurer would need to hold more assets providing a lower return than would be required if the assets were providing a higher return. Over the last 12 months or so, of course, the opposite has happened. Interest rates have increased, buy-in liabilities have fallen in value, and that is why pension schemes are now so much better funded on a buy-in measure. If a pension scheme was to invest now in bond-related assets, so that might be gilts or corporate bonds or even an LDI policy, then should interest rates start to move lower again, the resulting increase in the buy-in price will be offset by an increase in the value of those assets. Bond-related assets offer a fixed rate of return, and if interest rates fall, the fixed rate from those bonds looks increasingly preferential compared to other assets available on the market, so bond prices increase. You mentioned a number of key drivers. Uh, what else influences buying pricing? Well, a second important factor um, is inflation, and, and this one is more intuitive. If, if future inflation is expected to be higher, the benefits due from a scheme will be higher, and the buy-in price increases. To mitigate this risk, schemes would need to invest in either index-linked gilts or an LDI policy. The final key market influence on buy-in pricing is the credit spread, by which we mean the additional yield offered by corporate bonds over and above gilt yields. This matters because insurers tend to invest in corporate bonds, and the yield on the assets held by an insurer has an influence on their pricing structure. If the credit spread were to tighten, which would happen if corporate bonds outperformed gilts, then buy-in pricing would increase. A pension scheme could mitigate this risk by investing in corporate bonds. In simple terms, if corporate bonds perform strongly, buy-in pricing is likely to go up. But if a scheme invests in corporate bonds, those assets will go up too. And that helps to protect the scheme's buy-in funding position. Thanks. Um, you'd expect that schemes approaching buy-in will or perhaps should be in a low-risk position. In the wake of the well-publicised LDI problems till the end of last year, is LDI an appropriate asset class in this context? Well, it's certainly true that the problems faced by the LDI market have been widely reported on, 
I think some of that reporting has been a little bit sensationalist and perhaps unhelpful. Of course, there are risks associated with LDI, just as there are risks with any investment. But a well-structured allocation to LDI can be a really important component of a scheme's investment strategy and can really effectively match buy-in pricing. The key challenge when it comes to investing to match buy-in pricing is that schemes need to simultaneously protect against changes in inflation and the credit spread, and there is not really a conventional asset class that enables this. Index-linked gilts protect against changes in inflation, but are not linked to the credit spread, whilst corporate bonds move like buy-in liabilities if the credit spread changes, but they don't offer any protection against inflation. Ideally, what we want is to invest in index-linked corporate bonds, but they don't really exist. So the use of LDI allows us to create an investment strategy that hedges against inflation and the credit spread at the same time. It's important that an LDI allocation is structured so that the leverage can be managed effectively, and this might limit the amount that can be invested in corporate bonds. But nevertheless, the corporate bond allocation will be higher than under a non-LDI strategy. For example, if a scheme's liabilities are 60% linked to inflation, a scheme could match that 60% inflation by putting 60% into index-linked gilts, and that would leave 40% to be invested in corporate bonds. Or alternatively, a scheme might put 30% say into LDI, that would hedge the inflation, but that would leave 70% of the assets left to be invested in corporate bonds. And that stra second strategy, the one with the LDI, is likely to be a better match for changes in buy-in pricing. Okay, uh, I'm aware of at least one insurer that offers pooled funds, which can be used by schemes in the run-up run to buy-in to lock in the scheme's funding position. Are those funds effective? Yes, there is an insurer which offers funds of that nature, and they are an effective and simple way for schemes to match changes in buy-in pricing. Those funds combine credit assets and LDI within a, a single pooled fund, and that is exactly the strategy that I've, I've just described. But the advantage of doing it within a pooled fund is that the management of the LDI leverage is dealt with within the pooled funds. It's a simple solution and it works well. So we've discussed some of the key considerations for schemes looking to reduce the risk of having a mismatch between scheme asset holdings and insurer pricing. In practice, how accurately can a pension scheme match buy-in pricing? Well, it isn't possible to achieve a perfect match. Using the asset classes that I've described, a scheme can protect against some of the main factors influencing buy-in pricing, but a measure of volatility will inevitably remain. It's important to note that some factors simply can't be hedged. For example, the investment strategy will not offer protection if buy-in pricing becomes more expensive because life expectancy increases. And there's no protection if insurers increase their expense reserves or profit requirements. Both of those would increase buy-in pricing. But nevertheless, a well-structured investment strategy should enable a scheme to materially reduce the volatility of a scheme's buy-in funding position. OK, thank you. So we've talked about strategies. Um, just thinking about timing, when should trustees look to move into the sort of strategy that you've described? Well, I guess there are likely to be two categories of schemes. Some schemes will be in the fortunate position where they are already very well funded on a buy-in basis. And they should be looking to immediately implement a strategy that locks in the strong funding position. For other schemes, buy-in might remain some way away, but there will be an expectation that the shortfall will close over time. And for schemes in that position, I typically expect the investment strategy to gradually evolve towards one which protects against the buy-in funding position over time. And this would see a switch out of risk riskier assets such as equities, 
and a gradual increase in allocations to gilts, corporate bonds and perhaps LDI. An effective way of allowing the investment strategy to evolve can be to set triggers based on the buy-in funding level. Under such an approach, as the funding level improves, step changes are repeatedly made to the strategy, building up the target allocation that will eventually closely lock in the buy-in funding position when full funding is achieved. Okay, that's helpful. Uh, of course, asset holdings are not always straightforward, and some schemes may hold investments in less mainstream products that are not easily realised. Could you say a little bit about the complications that might arise if schemes are holding illiquid assets in the run-up to buy-in? Well, that is definitely something that needs to be considered, and the sooner the better if it's anticipated that buy-in is a realistic prospect within the next few years. Illiquid assets can be difficult to sell, and this is an obvious problem if a scheme is looking to sell assets to fund a buy-in premium. In some cases, it might be possible to transfer the assets directly to the insurer, and when trustees start to think about buy-in, it's worth speaking with insurers to see if an asset transfer might be feasible. If not, illiquid assets will need to be sold. And as I say, the sooner this is identified, the better, as allowing a longer time frame for the sale will reduce the chance of having to sell the assets at a marked down price. In some cases, the best option might be to delay buy-in to avoid incurring a loss from a forced sale of illiquid assets. For schemes in that situation, the other assets, the liquid assets, can be moved to match the buy-in price and then the buy-in put on hold until the illiquid assets can be sold. In some instances, an insurer might agree to implement the insurance through payment of an initial premium from the liquid assets and then a top-up payment in due course when the illiquid assets can be sold, a deferred premium. Certainly, it's worth asking an insurer if such a stru structure can be accommodated. Alternatively, perhaps some of the liabilities could be insured as a first stage, with the residual liabilities being picked up when the illiquid asset can be sold. OK, well, plenty for schemes to think about. Um, we discussed earlier the possibility of insurers providing pooled funds. Are there any mechanisms that can be used to further reduce or eliminate pricing risk when the scheme's at the point of transacting and just about to purchase a bulk annuity contract? Yes, in, in practice, as a scheme reaches the point of transacting, it is likely to agree a period of exclusivity with an insurer, during which time the scheme will only negotiate with that insurer as they try to reach agreed terms. In exchange for exclusivity, depending on the size of the scheme and the relative bargaining positions, insurers may offer a range of options to help manage late stage pricing fluctuations. These might include a price lock or an asset lock. Under a price lock, the insurer agrees that their quotation premium will move in line with the portfolio of identified assets, often gilts, but sometimes including corporate bonds and swaps. And this allows the scheme to make sure that their investments match the movement in the quotation premium and that effectively removes any the impact of any last minute price fluctuations. An asset lock is also sometimes offered, and this operates in broadly the same way as a price lock, but instead of using a portfolio of assets identified by the insurer, it will instead use the scheme's assets as the portfolio of identified assets. The scheme then doesn't have to make any adjustments to its investment holding, and again benefits from the protection against late movements in price. Thank you. So when the time finally comes to pay the buy-in premium, secure the insurance, how do schemes achieve that in practice? In simple terms, the existing assets will be sold and the proceeds used to pay the buy-in premium in cash. There are, however, a couple of points that need to be considered. 
Firstly, it might be possible to transfer some of the existing assets directly to the insurer. And where this can be achieved, it avoids the transaction costs associated with selling and then repurchasing assets. In the run-up to a buy-in proceeding, the investment consultant should be discussing the existing assets with the insurer to establish whether any assets can be transferred. Secondly, where assets do need to be sold, it's really important to ensure that trade, gate, trade dates are aligned. The investment consultant should work closely with the insurer to ensure that trading terms are understood and to agree a plan which ensures that the buy-in policy goes live at the precise point that the existing assets are sold. Well, we've covered a lot of interesting uh, issues there. And thank you, Andrew, very much for an, an informative and, and topical session. That's all for today. Um, thank you for listening. And please do contact me or your usual Osborne Clark contact if you'd like to know anything else about getting your scheme uh, by already. Andrew has also kindly agreed to leave his contact details, which you can find alongside the link to this podcast. If you'd like to join us next time, we'll be looking in greater detail at how a typical bulk annuity contract